Ephesians chapter 6, the Apostle Paul says something like this, Our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers and authorities and cosmic powers in the darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. It's February, and the spiritual forces of evil are at work in our midst, friends. Uh, The clouds are out. We're bundled up and buffered from each other in various ways. Financial hardship is everywhere. Um, New Year's resolutions have all worn off. Uh, Big decisions need to be made. Romantic relationships are like, uh, I don't know, like, like, I don't know, shifting tectonic plates or something. Uh, it, it seems like a bit easier this month for most people I know to eat horribly, uh, to, to play video games for hours on end, uh, to give up taking care of yourself, to just sleep in and, or stay up late and sleep in and skip class, to think I'll deal with consequences later, to indulge, to indulge, to pick up old habits which have wreaked havoc in our lives. But maybe this time I can get by with them a little bit. Maybe that doesn't describe, maybe that doesn't describe you. It describes my weekend. But maybe it doesn't describe you. But it describes a lot of people around you. Uh, and we impact each other, friends. God made us this way. We're affected and changed by each other. And so into the midst, midst of the February funk, uh, I want to warm up the mood a little bit by talking about sex. Uh, right between Valentine's Day and spring break, we're going to talk about sex. Um... Uh, and I, I think this is fitting, not just because it's going to uh, pick up our heart rate a little and get blood rushing to our cheeks and maybe other areas, but because so many of us are lonely. Friends, so many. That's way better than the other joke I was going to tell. Uh, uh, li- listen, listen, listen. So many of us are lonely. Last week, Kirsten preached on belonging in the kingdom of God. Do you remember that? If you were here last week, here's the preach on belonging in the kingdom of God. Here in God's kingdom, you don't need to fit in or measure up in order to belong to the family of God. Jesus extends belonging to you first, and he takes care of any fitting in that needs to happen on the other side of that. He loves you just as you are, as messed up as you are, as filthy as you are, as broken as you are, as unsure as you are. He is sure. That right in the middle of all that you have going on is the person of unfathomable worth, which he made from scratch. I gotta put this down somewhere. It's gonna ring. And no amount of dirt or misuse or ugliness or evil can hide your worth from the one who made you, friends. You belong to him, and he wants you to know that and accept that. (laughs) And this kind of message strikes at us, I think, precisely because so many of us feel lonely and feel like we don't belong. And there's a kind of family belonging that we need to be invited into, that God created us for, uh, to have a seat at the table, to be welcome in a home, to have our stories woven into these stories. But there's another kind of belonging we desire, and to address that kind of belonging, God made sex. If you remember the story right there, in the middle of the perfect garden, in the presence of God, with no sin and no shame, God said it's not good for this human to be alone. Have you heard that story from Genesis 2? You should read it tonight. It's really dramatic. Okay? It's it's, it's not good for this human to be alone. And so God marches all of the animal kingdom before this human. And each one, each, each, your, your imagination is summoned up to imagine each species paraded before this human. 
for this human to consider and for God to look on and say, is this a good match? I don't think the antelope and the human are going to do so well together. Next. The elephant, nope. The whale, uh, nope. I mean, that's what you're supposed to do is you're supposed to imagine God parading all of these animals before the human and saying, no, none of these is a good match. And, and every single time that each one is, is deemed unworthy to address the aloneness of the human, the drama increases, the urgency gets bigger. Is there anything in all of creation which, which, can, which can address this aloneness, which can, uh, which can supplement, complement, rival, m- maybe even uh, win out over, I don't know, the glory of this human? Nope. And, and, and no matter how much you think a dog is a man's best friend, gentlemen, dogs aren't women. And so when everything in creation wasn't suitable and hopes are all but dashed, God does something new, something that wasn't there before. He makes woman. The first human's made from dust, but this one, this woman, she's made of something more magical, and when she arrives, she too will be named, but this time in poetry, this time in song. And the image is, is tremendous. Adam gets on his knees and begins to sing. I haven't seen anything like this. And do you know what happens? As soon as this sustainer, this helper, this equal is made alongside the first human, do you know what they do? They fulfill the first commandment given to humanity. That's what they do. Do you know what the first command in the Bible is, right? The Bible's full of commands. It's full of commands. What's the first one? You should know that. What's the first one? Be fruitful and multiply. And you know what that means. It means have sex. That's like the first God's, the God's God of commands and his very first command is have sex. It's his very first command. That's what this means. That's Genesis 1. And in Genesis 2, we see this happening. The man and the woman leave everyone else. They have an exclusive relationship with each other. They cling to one another. They become one. They have sex. And this is good, God says. This is very good. Let's pray. Father, uh, have mercy on me. Um, and, oh, Lord, send your spirit into this room to be present with each one of us, draw near to each one of us. For you know the ways that we do not believe that sex is good, and you know the ways that we do not believe sex is as powerful as it is, and, and you know the reasons for why we do that and why we believe those things. Not a single one of us in this room is um, unaffected by the ways in which this has gone sideways. So tonight, give us hope. Uh, Please, may your scriptures speak clearly to us. May you keep me from being a heretic. Um, May you heal and make new and give hope. Ultimately, for your son, Jesus and in everything else that he promises us in his kingdom. In his name we pray. Amen. So to explore the goodness of sex tonight, I want to read a book of the Bible to you, and I can think of nothing which will impress upon you the goodness and awesomeness of sex as much as you simply hearing the text in a community like this. I was talking to one of my best friends uh, about this earlier today, and, and it struck him. He said, you know, I never have heard this read out loud in a community. And he said, it's interesting, I've never thought about that. And I started to explain to him what was in this text that he had read like a dozen times, and he was like, oh, dang, you know. Uh, and he sort of began to wonder what it was like. So he said, I'm going to pray for you um, tonight. Um, 
But listen, before I read this to you, there's a few things I want to tell you because it's going to help you to frame, hey, listen to this. First, this book has been interpreted in so many ways throughout history. The material that we're about to read is so explicit and so sensual that for most of Jewish and Christian history, the Song of Songs has been interpreted allegorically. Do you know what an allegory is? Do you know allegory? Anybody know what an allegory is? Like the literary and poetic form of allegory? It's, it's, like a, it's a form of uh, poetry or storytelling where like all the elements of the story have hidden meaning. And so this thing really means that thing, and this thing really means that thing, and this thing, you know, really means that thing. Sort of, sort of like metaphor, but that everything is really about other things. So let me give you an example uh, that we're going to read in a second from Song of, Psalms, uh, Song of Songs 113. Would you put that on the board, Keely? Uh, a sachet of, I got to get used to just reading this to y'all. A sachet of myrrh is my lover to me all night between my breasts. Song of Songs. Just keep that up there for a second. Um, oh, everybody look at that. Uh, so, so what's this about? Use your imagination. You can. You're allowed to use your imagination. That's an okay thing to do. Uh, you're reading the Bible. Uh, so use it. Um, is that hard to understand? Because you know what this is about. What this is about is the Old and New Testaments, right? That's what this is about. It's about biblical theology. Uh, if you think I'm joking, I want you to look at, I want, listen, listen, I'm gonna, you keep that up there because I want to read to you something um, about Cyril of Alexandria who lived about a thousand years ago as a church father, wrote a ton of good stuff for us. And many commentators have agreed with Cyril uh, up until about the last hundred years um, when, when, quite frankly, a bunch of archaeological finds have, have sort of shown us how this uh, Hebrew love poetry fits in and speaks against and alongside of other ancient Near Eastern love poems. Now, nobody interprets it this way, but listen, listen. This is a, a quote from uh, Tremper Longman, who's one of the world's leading Old Testament scholars. Cyril of Alexandria is at his creative best when he suggests that the verse describes what we today would call biblical theology. The breasts are the Old and New Testaments. Presumably linked only by their two-ness, Jesus Christ is the sachet of myrrh. Uh, and, and this is common. People will say the left breast is uh, the Old Testament and the right breast is the New Testament and the cross is in the middle and that's what this is about. <laughs> Y'all, okay? Uh, that's some work, friends. That is some creative work. That's somebody who's like, I don't want the C, I want the A, and I got an F. Okay, like that's what that is. Um, Okay, so listen, here's what you need to know as we read this, that this book makes us so uncomfortable and we have such a hard time taking it on its face that in fact, if you're an Orthodox Jewish man, you should leave the room right now. Because if you're an Orthodox Jewish man, you're not allowed to read this until you're 30. Seriously, you're not, Orthodox Jewish men are not allowed to read this until they're 30. Second, this is a collection of poems. And for some of you, it's just, I need you to, to orient your imagination and your expectations for a minute. The chronology is strange in this book. It moves back and forth, and sometimes there are conversations, um, uh, and sometimes there are like what seems like dreams. Essentially, in reading this, you're going to notice intertwined themes of, of the passion of love, of descriptions of the beauty of another person, of finding and seeking love, of warnings about the power of love. There's moments of courtship and moments of marriage and moments of being separated from each other. And these circle around each other and intertwine and overlap and move back and forth and serve less as a narrative and an explanation of love and sex and more as meditations on them. Building and building until a moment of reflection right near the end that we'll look at uh, as we close tonight. And because of this, I want you to listen to this reading less as an explanation and more as an exploration, if you will. Be swept up in it. Listen to it like you listen to a symphony or something. 
where you don't pause and say, what did that mean? You just sit there and take it in. And let what happens to you happen to you. Let your feelings and your emotions come to the surface. Be willing to be confused and to ponder and to wonder. I, I often think of it like this because this was told to me um, once. Uh, it was preached to me once uh, by my college pastor when he was preaching through Revelation. Um, he used this metaphor and it stuck with me. That as we, uh, if you listen to, to modern songs, like even the worship songs we just sang, there's, there's two major things going on. There are lyrics and then there's the music, right? The lyrics and the music. And as we read the Song of Songs, I want you to listen to the music and not to get too caught up in the lyrics. Does that make sense? Okay, along with that, there's a ton of euphemisms in this text. Um, You're going to hear about gardens and fountains and gazelles and mountains and trees and sheep. An ivory tower is really interesting. Um, and, And honey and milk and pomegranates and doors and shoots. And each of these is an evocative and sexual image. And just like our euphemisms today, though, they're super contextual, right? So, like, in a thousand years, if someone were to sort of uh, sit around and discuss our culture and, like, research, uh, you know, 21st century United States, um, they might be uh, sort of fascinated and have huge debates about why we have such sexual attraction to people with fevers. But we really want to be friends with people who had very low body heat. Why? Because we keep using things like, she's super hot and he's pretty cool. And they're going to like go, like, God, what do these words mean? I think that they really were attracted to people who had like high temperatures, but they were like friends with people that had low body. Like, like sometimes we can get really caught up if we forget that euphemisms are highly contextual and cultural. Like, like when this guy talks about this girl's teeth being like sheep, like don't, you shouldn't copy and paste that, okay? Uh, but in their context, this, this really, is really significant. Um, if you have questions about some of the euphemisms we can talk about later. Uh, the, but look, they don't translate well for us, but I think you're going to get the imagery anyway. Okay, lastly, in biblical Hebrew, in, in the biblical Hebrew, like in, in, the, in the Old Testament for the, for the Jewish people, even today, the placement of this book is really fascinating and really telling. So if you were to read the Hebrew Bible and look at its ordering, its structure, what you would find is Proverbs and then Ruth come right before the Song of Songs. Does anybody know how Proverbs ends? What's the very last chapter of Proverbs about? Proverbs 31, right? The virtuous woman. And then Ruth is the story of a virtuous woman. And the Song of Songs is the story of a virtuous and assertive woman. That's not accidental in the, in the Hebrew canon to organize it this way. This is fundamentally and primarily uh, in terms of the voice that's coming out, a story uh, of a woman in this, in this case. And it's a woman's voice that we're going to hear most from the Song of Songs has a variety of voices in it. There's a country girl, a shepherd boy, some city girls, some brothers, a mother, the king. But the dominant voice is that of the country girl. And she is a virtuous woman who desires sexual intimacy with her lover. All right, so this is going to take about 15 minutes. And I'm guessing most of you have never had a whole book of the Bible read to you before. Buckle up. Uh, and uh, <laughs> uh, there's going to be some words I don't even know how to pronounce. But we're going we're gonna to make it happen. Um, If it helps, close your eyes. Um, This will take about 15 minutes. Chapter 1, Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. For your loving is better than wine. For fragrance, your oils are goodly. Poured out is your name. And so the young women love you. Draw me after you and let us run. The king has brought me to his chamber Let us be glad and rejoice in you. Let us extol your loving beyond wine. Rightly do they love you. I am dark, but desirable. 
O daughters of Jerusalem, like the tents of Kedar, like Solomon's curtains, do not look on me for being dark, for the sun has glared on me. My mother's sons were incensed with me. They made me a keeper in the vineyards. My own vineyard I have not kept. Tell me whom I love so, where you pasture your flock at noon, lest I go straying after the flocks of your companions. If you do not know, O fairest of women, go out in the tracks of the sheep and graze your goats by the shepherd's shelters. To my mare among Pharaoh's chariots, I likened you, my friend. Your cheeks are lovely with looped earrings, your neck with beads. Earrings of gold we will make for you with silver filigree. While the king was on his couch, my nard gave off its scent. A sachet of myrrh is my lover to me, all night between my breasts. A cluster of henna, my lover to me, in the vineyards of Ian Getty. Oh, you are fair, my friend. Oh, you are fair, and your eyes are doves. Oh, you are fair, my lover. You are sweet. Our bed is verdant, too. Our house's beams are cedar, and our rafters evergreens. I am the rose of Sharon, the lily of the valley. Like a lily among the thorns, so is my friend among the young women. Like a quince tree among the trees of the forest, so is my lover among the young men. In its shade I delighted to sit, and its fruit was sweet to my taste. He has brought me to the house of wine, and his banner over me is love. Stay me up with raisin cakes, cushion me with quinces, for I am in a swoon of love. His left hand beneath my head, his right hand embracing me. I make you swear, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the deers or the gazelle of the field, that you shall not rouse, not stir love until it pleases. Hark! O my lover is coming, bounding over the mountains, leaping over the hills, My lover is like a deer or like a stag. Oh, he stands behind our wall, peering through the windows, peeping through the crannies. My lover spoke out and said to me, Arise, my friend, my fair one, go. For look, winter has passed, the rain has gone away, buds can be seen in the land, the nightingale's season has come, and the turtle dove's voice is heard in our land. The fig tree has put forth its green fruit, and the vines in blossom waft fragrance. Arise and go, my friend, my fair one, go forth. My dove in the rock's crevices, in the hollow of the cliff. Show me how you look. Let me hear your voice, for your voice is sweet and your look is desirable. Seize us the foxes, the little foxes despoiling the vineyards. But our vineyards are in bloom. My lover is mine and I am his, who grazes among the lilies. Until morning's breeze blows and the shadows flee, turn round, be like a deer, my love or like a gazelle on the cloven mountains. On my couch at night I sought him so. I sought him but did not find him. Let me rise and go round the town and the streets and in the square. Let me seek him I love so. I sought him but did not find him. The watchmen who go around the town found me. Have you seen him I love so? I had barely passed on from them when I found him I love so. I held him and did not let go. Till I brought him to my mother's house and to the chamber of her who conceived me, I make you swear, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the deer or by the gazelles of the field, that you shall not stir nor arouse love until it pleases. Who is this coming from the desert like a pillar of smoke, perfumed with myrrh and frankincense from all the merchants' powders? Look, Solomon's bed, sixty warriors round it and of the warriors of Israel, all of them wielding the sword, trained in battle, each with his sword on his thigh out of the terror in the nights. A palanquin did King Solomon make from Lebanon wood, 
Its posts he made of silver, its padding gold, its curtains crimson, its inside paved with love by the daughters of Jerusalem. Go out and behold, O daughters of Zion, King Solomon in the diadem with which his mother crowned him on his wedding day, on the day of his heart's rejoicing. Oh, you are fair, my friend. Oh, you are fair. Your eyes are doves through the screen of your tresses. Your hair is like a herd of goats that have swept down from Mount Gilead. Your teeth like a flock of matched ewes that have come up from the washing. All of them are alike, and none of them has lost its young. Like a scarlet thread, your lips and your tongue desire. Like cut pomegranate, your cheekbones through the screen of your tresses. Like the tower of David, your neck built gloriously. A thousand shields are hung on it, all the warriors' bucklers. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle that graze among the lilies. Till morning's breeze blows and the shadows flee, I will go to the mountain of myrrh and to the hill of frankincense. You are wholly fair, my friend. There is no blemish in you. With me from Lebanon, bride, with me from Lebanon, come. Gaze from the peak of Amanah, from the peak of Sinir and Hermon, from the lion's dens and from the leopard's mountains. You have captured my heart, my sister, bride. You've captured my heart with one glance of your eyes, with one bead of your necklace. How beautiful you're loving, my sister, bride. How much better you're loving than wine, and the scent of your unguents than all perfumes. Nectar your lips drip, bride. Honey and milk are under your tongue, and the scent of your robes like Lebanon's scent. A locked garden, my sister, bride. A locked well, a sealed spring. Your branches, an orchard of pomegranates with luscious fruit. Henna and spikenard, spikenard and saffron, cane and cinnamon with every tree of frankincense, myrrh and aloes with every choice perfume, a garden spring, a garden of fresh water and streams from Lebanon. Arise, O north, and come, O south, blow on my garden and let its perfumes flow. Let my lover come to his garden and eat its luscious fruit. I have come to my garden, my sister, bride. I have gathered my myrrh with my perfume. I've eaten my honeycomb with my milk. I've drunk my wine with my milk. Eat, friends, and drink, and be drunk with loving. I was asleep, but my heart was awake. Hark, my lover knocks. Open for me, my sister, my friend, my dove, my perfect one, for my head is drenched with dew, my locks with the drops of the night. I've put off my gown. How can I don it? I've bathed my feet. How can I besmirch them? My lover pulled back his hand from the latch, and my heart raced within me. I rose to open for my lover. My hands dripped myrrh, my fingers liquid myrrh over the handles of the bolt. I opened for my lover, but my lover had slipped off, was gone. My breath left me when he spoke. I sought him but did not find him. I called him but he did not answer. The watchmen who go around the town found me. They struck me. They wounded me. They pulled my veil from me. The watchmen of the walls. I make you swear, O daughters of Jerusalem. Should you find my lover, what shall you tell him? That I am in a swoon of love. How is your lover more than another, O fairest of women? How is your lover more than another that thus you make us vow? My lover is shining white and ruddy, standing out among ten thousand. His head is purest gold. His locks are curls, black as a raven. His eyes are like doves by streams of water bathing in milk, dwelling by a pool. His cheeks are like beds of spices sprouting aromatic scents. His lips are lilies, dripping liquid myrrh. His arms are coils of gold inset with ruby. His loins are fine-wrought ivory, 
with sapphire inlaid. His thighs are ivory pillars set on pedestals of gold. Like Lebanon, his look, he is as choice as the cedars. His mouth is sweetest drink, all of him delight. This is my lover, and this is my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem. Where has your lover gone, O fairest among women? Where has your lover turned that we might seek him with you? My lover has gone down to his garden, to the spice beds, to graze in the garden and to gather lilies. I am my lover's, and my lover is mine, who grazes among the lilies. You are fair, my friend, as Tirzah, lovely as Jerusalem, daunting as what looms on high. Turn away your eyes from me, for they have overwhelmed me. Your hair is like a herd of goats that have swept down from Mount Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of ewes that have come up from the washing, and all of them are alike. None of them has lost its young. Like cut pomegranate your cheekbones through the screen of your tresses. Sixty are their queens, and eighty concubines, and young women beyond number. Just one is my dove, my pure one. Just one to her mother, dazzling to her who bore her. The girls saw her and called her happy. Queens and concubines, they praised her. Who is this espiad like the dawn? Fair as the moon, dazzling as the sun, daunting as what looms on high. To the walnut garden I went down to see the buds of the brook, to see if the vine had blossomed, if the pomegranate trees were in flower. I scarcely knew myself. She set me in the noblest chariot. Turn back, turn back, O Shulamite, turn back that we may behold you. Why should you behold a Shulamite in the dance of the double rose? How fair your feet in sandals, O daughter of a nobleman, the curves of your thighs like wrought rings, the handiwork of a master, your navel a crescent bowl, let mixed wine never lack. Your belly a mound of wheat hedged about with lilies. Your two breasts like two fawns, twins of a gazelle. Your neck like an ivory tower. Your eyes like the pools of Heshbon, by the gate of the tower of the grandees. Your nose like the tower of Lebanon looking out toward Damascus. Your head upon you like Mount Carmel. And the locks of your head are purple. A king is caught in the tangle. How fair are you. How sweet, O love, among delights. Your stature was like a palm tree, and your breasts were like the clusters. And I thought, I will climb that palm, and I will grasp its stalks, and let your breasts be like grape clusters, and the scent of your breath like quince, and your mouth like goodly wine. It flows to my lover smoothly, stirring sleeper's lips to speak. I am my lover's, and for me his desire. Come, my lover, let us go out to the field, and let us spend the night in the henna. There I will give my love to you. Let us rise early in the vineyards. We shall see if the vine is in flower, if the blossoms have opened, if the pomegranate trees have budded. There I will give my loving to you. The mandrakes give off fragrance, and at our door all luscious fruit, fresh picked and stored as well, I have laid up for you, my love. Would that you were a brother to me, suckling my mother's breasts. I would find you in the street, would kiss you, and they would have no scorn from me. I would lead you, I would bring you to my mother's house, she would teach me. I would give you spiced wine to drink from my pomegranate wine, his left hand beneath my head, his right hand embracing me. I make you swear, O daughters of Jerusalem, that you shall not rouse nor stir love until it pleases. Who is this coming up from the desert, leaning on her lover? Under the quince tree I roused you. There your mother conceived you, and there she, bore you, con there she who bore you conceived me. Set me as a seal on your heart. As a seal on your arm, for strong as death is love. Fierce as Sheol is jealousy. Its sparks are fiery sparks, a fearsome flame. Many waters cannot put out love, nor rivers sweep it away. 
Should a man give all the wealth of his house for love, they would surely scorn him. We have a little sister, and she has no breasts. What shall we do for our sister on the day she is spoken for? If she's a wall, we will build on her a silver turret. If she's a door, we will besiege her with cedar boards. I am a wall, and my breasts are like towers. Then I was in his eyes like a town that finds peace. A vineyard Solomon had in the Vale of Wealth, and he gave the vineyard to the keepers. Each would get from its fruit a thousand silver shekels. My vineyard is my own. You can have the thousand, Solomon, and two hundred for the keepers of its fruit. You who dwell in the garden, friends, listen for your voice. Let me hear it. Flee, my lover, and be like a deer or like a gazelle on the spice mountains. This is the word of the Lord. So when I say this is the word of the Lord, you're supposed to say thanks be to God. This is the word of the Lord. There you go. There you go. Oh, goodness. So, friends, that is the Song of Solomon's. This is the Holy Scripture. What does it mean for us that that is lifted up as the Word of God? This is just right of center in your Bible. What does it mean for us that this is lifted up and honored as the Word of God, that this is Holy Scripture? First, that sexual intimacy is good. It was good in the beginning, and here... Uh, we see glimpses of uh, rapturous joy, of being naked together and unashamed. There's a sense even that in marital sex, a couple can taste a moment of what life was like without sin. Life in the garden. I mean, did you catch how much garden imagery was in that text? How many times garden was mentioned, fields were mentioned, lilies were mentioned? Now, all the, the garden imagery uh, in there is actually about her garden, <laughs> not necessarily Genesis 1 garden, uh, but, but if you're steeped in the biblical story, if you've grown up and you're steeped in the biblical story, you couldn't help but see all of that against the backdrop of, of, of the garden imagery that governs the story of God's people, the place that they want to get to but can't get back in, the garden which is locked that they want inside. The garden that they wish that they could eat fruit from again. And do you see how closely uh, that language is mimicked in this text? This is good. Sex is good. From the outset of the biblical pages uh, of the story, when God made man and woman and commanded them to have sex as his first command to them, he said, this is very good. And here in the center of the Bible is this a really intense story of two people's erotic passion for each other. And it's, there, there's no condemnation of that. As a matter of fact, uh, we don't have time to get into this today, but so many times they're pushing against cultural norms in that moment to say this is really, really good. Unfortunately, many of us have not heard that. We've heard that sex is bad. Or we talk about it in, in way, uh, about all the ways that, that things are bad related to sex. Like, like, don't lust. Don't commit adultery. Don't have sex with anyone that's not your spouse. All of which I totally agree with. It's, and not only I agree, this is God's command to us, for sure. But none of those things are the first truth about sex. The first truth about sex is that it's good. Sex is good. 
The second thing we know from this story being front and center in the Bible, among other things, there's always other places I can go in the Bible. I just think of all the, the places just to read to you that don't even require a big argument. I just think read that and acknowledge the fact that it's the Holy Scriptures and ask yourself, what does that do to my concept of sex and sexual intimacy? Love is good if that's one thing that jumps out from The second thing is that love is powerful. It's so powerful that it demands commitment and it comes with a warning. It's so powerful it demands commitment and it comes with a warning. Um, Keely, would you put up uh, Song of Songs chapter 8 verses 6 through 7? I think I have that on here. Great, thank you. Um, so this is probably of all of the poems in, in Song of Songs and, and people have so many debates on the order of this thing. Some people will argue it's one continuous thing. Uh, some people will argue it's 23 short poems. I'll put together. Um, there's, there's all these different voices in it that are going back and forth. But, but, but almost everybody would agree that this is probably the most soaring piece of the whole thing. It's the only time in the whole book that you ever zoom out just a tad and you make, and, and there's, there's a, um, it's not just two people in the story. It's somebody who's now articulating something about that story. So listen to this, right? Set me as a seal on your heart, as a seal on your arm. For strong as death is love, fierce as Sheol. Its sparks are fiery sparks, a fearsome flame. Many waters cannot put out love, nor rivers sweep it away. Should a man give all his wealth of his house for love, they would surely scorn him. Love is so powerful. It's so powerful that, 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 it, that it requires a commitment. Sexual love awakens and desires and hungers and searches. That, that's what the kind of stuff that it does. It's strong as death, she says. It's fierce as the grave. It's like a fearsome flame with dangerous sparks. It's so strong that many waters cannot put it out, nor rivers sweep it away. It's so powerful, says the woman, that you must set me as a seal on your heart and as a seal on your arm. In other words, it's so powerful that we must belong to each other for this to be awakened and for us to enjoy this. It's that powerful. Look, set me as a seal on your heart, as a seal on your arm. Why? Because strong as death is this thing. Sex as God intended is an act of sharing who you are with another, not just a part of your body sharing who you are with somebody else. It is, it is uh, God made it as an act of self-giving. Self-giving. Uh, this isn't in my notes. Oh, gosh, I hope this doesn't take too long. Uh, I, I often talk with couples in premarital counseling about sex in this way, where um, I had sex quite a bit before I got married. Uh, my wife was the first woman I dated and said, I love you too, that I didn't have sex with. And, uh, and that's... Uh, that's being legalistic. <laughs> uh, so the, uh, in, in conversations with lots of couples, they begin to wonder, like, how is sex different in marriage and out of marriage? And um, if I've had sex before, does that negatively impact my marriage? Are we never going to have a happy marriage? I've known people that said they will never marry somebody that's not a virgin because they have such a belief in this, and they have a lack of belief in God's redemptive power that they think that way. Um, it, it's really remarkable. Christians, you should not think that way. Um, but... But, but I, I begin to notice how powerful some of this damage is that people come in to, to thinking about getting married just terrified 
about some of these things. And I try to tell them one of the, and this doesn't address all of these things, but I try to tell them one of the great surprises is that you never had sex in the way that God intends. You've never done this. You've never had it in marriage, and you've, you've never actually ever. Actually, is anybody in here married? One person. Hey, Kirsten, what's up? You're exempt from this conversation in this way. Okay, but, but here's what this means. None of you have ever had, I mean, for those of you that have had sex, none of you have ever had sex in a way that is self-giving and glorifies God and loves the other. Never. You have at best, oh, that's a terrible phrasing for it, but do you see what I mean? At best what you've had is some consent that each of you will get what you want from each other. And you're cool with it so long as consent is there and you each get pleasure from it. But, but sex in that way is not a giving act. It's a taking one. And sex is not designed to be that. It's designed as a way to give yourself to another person. To, to make a deposit of my very being into another person. For, for her to deposit herself into me. That's what it's intended to be. God designed it to be that for a married couple, for me and my wife, each time we have sex, we are giving ourselves to one another again. Each time. And, and we, in a sense, in a sense, we even renew, I, I almost sort of want to keep this out because it's just complicated language, but I think this might be helpful for some of you, that we renew our covenant to one another every time we have sex. As if each time we have sex, we say to one another, place me as a seal upon your heart and I will place you as a seal upon mine. The things that, the ways in which love has been awakened in us now, we have desires which are super hard to satisfy. And I'll get to this in a second, but it's not just desires for physical pleasure. It's actually, that's such a small part of it. The physical pleasure of sex is rad, okay? But it's actually such a small part of it. Most, a lot of you know that, okay? Uh, not, maybe not most of you, but I know a lot of you do, okay? Uh, the, it's, it's really, really rad, but that's not even close to what we really hunger for and desire. And, and, and what happens with sex, with this sexual intimacy and with this kind of love is it awakens this sort of hunger and desire that you want satisfied. It's so strong that the woman in Song of Songs says, unless I am a seal upon you, don't do it. And she warns these women that are her friends, these city girls from Jerusalem, she warns them, don't do this. Because once you awaken it, you can't put it to sleep again. And, every, and, and my wife and I, this is the invitation in marriage that every time we have sex in our marriage, there's a sense in which we say once again, because it, it's exclusive, and we don't do this with anybody else, that you are mine and I am yours. And that is, that is the context within which this oh, ridiculously powerful flame with fiery sparks can be remotely safe. If this sounds strange to you, an old rabbinical practice in the Jewish culture, truly, would be to read the Song of Songs each week the night before Sabbath. See, you know what I mean. Uh, but, but here's, none of you have any clue why I just said that, except for thunder. Uh, but, but here's why. Because they believed in their allegorical readings, when they read this story, they went, this whole thing is this repeated act of renewing a covenant between lovers. And so as we prepare ourselves to worship God on the Sabbath, corporately, in our day of rest, we, we read this whole book again, which just takes 15 minutes. It's not like a huge deal. But they'd read it again because they saw in this that this whole thing reeked of renewing a commitment. Somehow this was about a covenant relationship, about belonging to one another. 
This kind of love is so powerful that it demands commitment. Put me as a seal on your heart, as a seal on your arm, because love is as powerful as death, and a love that's so powerful like that comes with a warning. Perhaps you caught it thrice repeated in the Song of Songs. Uh, Did I give you chapter 8, verse 4? Did I do that? Okay, great. Would you put that one up real quick? Let's see if I can find the rest of my notes. Maybe I don't have the rest of my notes. Well, we're going to see what happens, friends. Somebody want to run down to the printer and see if it's there? We're going to work through the rest anyway. Um, so, uh, it's almost over, don't worry about it. Uh, but the, you guys don't want to talk about sex too much longer. So listen to this from Song of Songs 8.4. I make you swear, O daughters of Jerusalem, that you shall not rouse nor stir love until it pleases. Did you hear that three times? Love that's this powerful doesn't just demand a commitment, it comes with a warning. Because she knows, I've already said this, she knows that once you awaken love like this, you can't put it to sleep again. How many of us know that in this? You don't have to raise your hands. It might be good for you. It might be cathartic for you to raise your hands. I don't know. But, um, but how many of us know this experience? And when you begin to awaken this thing, you can't put it to sleep again. I remember being, um, I remember being a freshman, sophomore in college, and, and I remember hearing, uh, you know, arguments about masturbation and lust a lot. I don't know, I think there's a sense in which our culture has, has just tilted so far that we've just uh, uh, sort of culturally agreed that it's totally cool because you can always have consent with yourself or something. I don't know. But, but it, when I was growing up, uh, we were like, we don't know what we think about masturbation. Uh, and, uh, and I remember hearing people talk like, well, one of the things that, that uh, ladies, I don't know if these conversations ever happened with you, but this is what happened with guys that I was around, is guys would be like, well, no, you, you do that because you have these desires that you need to satisfy. And if you really want to honor a girl, you, you can't just like have sex with anybody you want. And so what happens? And some guy would be like, well, that's why God gives us wet dreams. Uh, and these are the, these are the ways the conversations would happen, right? But here, here's the thing that's so strange to me. Who has ever had sex, ever, or, or masturbated? Who's ever done that and thought, no, I'm good. I think I'm done now. I mean, has it ever happened? Has anybody in this room ever had sex and then thought, I don't need it anymore when it was, when it was awakened and good? No, 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 the reality is like sex begets sex, which is a fantastic sentence if you think about it. Uh, okay, sex begets sex. When you awaken this thing, it gets hungry. And the woman in this thing is, it is awesome. She loves this shepherd guy. I mean, she really loves this shepherd guy. She tells these people about their experiences. She tells about dreams that she has about this guy, about her desires for this guy. But she recognizes its power and its hunger and its desire is so strong that she looks to her friends from the city and she says, ladies, be careful, do not. Like she actually says, vow to me. She demands that they make a promise to her which is way bigger than just a warning. Promise me, you will not awaken this until it's time. Love is so powerful that it has to come with a commitment and it comes with a warning. This kind of love does. Friends, listen, you do, take, it, take it on the advice of this, uh, this country girl that you do not need to go looking for this. You don't need to be urgent about it. Anybody who's married can tell you there's a lot of st- Everybody who's not married makes way bigger idols of marriage than people who are married think about. 
People who are married make idols of singleness, I suppose. I don't know. That's like a whatever. But, uh, but, but truly, there is so much. I mean, the, the, the ways in which uh, people miss each other, the ways in which people make idols of each other, I think marriage is absolutely wonderful, but you don't want it if it's not the right time and not or the right person. I promise you don't want it, friends. If it's not the right person at the right time, and if you're asking the question, it's not the right person at the right time. If you go, I wonder if it's the right person and I wonder if it's the right, it's not. If some of you want to talk about how certain you need to be, we can talk. I have a statistic for you. But, 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 but listen, listen, listen. Some of us fantasize about this sort of thing. Not just like lustful thoughts. We fantasize about having love awakened with a particular person and we're just longing for that person. You don't even know what you're asking for. It's too powerful for you. You don't want something that's stronger than death, something that waters can't quench, that rivers can't wash away with the wrong person at the wrong time. Do you understand that? Is that my sermon? We're going to see how far off I'm at. Thanks, man. Hey, everybody, this is Matt Rusnagel. Thanks, Matt. Oh, sweet. All right. Good. We have, we're, we're somewhere around here. Um, love is so... Love is good, love is powerful, and it's so powerful, it needs commitment, and it comes with a warning. And I want to say, uh, I guess I want to say just one last thing here before, before we come to the end of the Song of Songs stuff tonight. God intends for sex to stir up desire more than to finally satisfy it. God actually intends for sex to stir up desire more than, like, like at what point in the Song of Songs did you even get the feeling that the fire went out, and they were like, sweet, now let's sleep. Nope, just more fruit, more trees, more gardens, more things, I don't know, things like, uh, it's, like, dude, y'all, the commentaries are rad about this passage. The, like, there's the, I can't, it's, it's really interesting to me, and we'll get into this more next week, but in a culture that is so sexually liberal, like free, like, I mean, isn't that not in political words, but like the word liberal means free, um, they, they were, we're loose sexually with things. Like we're fine. Every, the average person in this room has probably seen thousands of naked bodies. I'm sure there are some of you in this room, in, in sexual context, I'm sure some of you in this room have, have, have never seen another person naked sexually. Uh, maybe you abstain from watching anything that's PG-13 or whatever. But on average, based on the statistics of pornography, based on how freely we talk about watching Game of Thrones... And those kinds of things, the average person in this room has probably seen thousands, if not ten thousands, tens of thousands of naked bodies in sexually provocative moments and ways. Not in the statue of David naked. David and Bathsheba naked. Okay, like that, that kind of, that's not that funny, okay, but, but whatever. The, the, but that's the way we've seen this stuff, right? It's, it's so strange to me that even, even with, with, with that kind of thing, how the commentaries, I'm like, I don't want to read the commentaries to you because I would be embarrassed even though the average person in this room has had more exposure to sexual intimacy and sexual things than, than I could possibly fathom. It's, it's really strange. I mean, but y'all, this, this stuff is weird. But th- this, this book just brings up so much stuff. You never see their love satisfied. It's just hungrier and hungrier and desires more and more. It is not good for humans to be alone. And when God makes woman, he gives the man and woman sex as a way to belong to one another. Yes, they give themselves to each other. That's a way that they express and form and shape community between them. That's actually what it's intended to do. But 
it also stirs up hunger for belonging that's bigger than any of them can finally satisfy. Sex between a husband and a wife also stirs up hunger that's bigger than any of them can satisfy. We're going to see how that works out in marriage in a couple weeks, but here's what that means for everyone who's single here. Or everyone who's not married here. (laughs) What's up, Kirsten? Um, Y'all don't need sex to live a full, robust life. For as good as it is, and for as powerful as it is, you don't need it to live a full life. This is actually remarkably unique. Like, no other uh, worldview, religion, or anything has ever lifted up the uh, single people like, like Christianity. Like, it's absolutely ridiculous. The value of, of singleness in, in the people of God is absolutely ridiculous. It's unsurpassed. And, and listen to this. Here's one of the ways this is addressed with sex. Because sex isn't, in the end, actually about sex. So, like, sex does create a sort of community, a belonging, it consummates and renews a covenant between me and my wife in, our, in the context of our marriage, truly, and it's beautiful and wonderful, whatever, but it actually, it actually reveals, the, every time, it reveals the fact that we want more, not even just more sex. I gotta, I gotta slow down. Okay, listen, sex in the end isn't just about sex, it's about something more. It, here's how I'm defining it. It's a preview of which you can, in Jesus Christ, see the whole movie later. What we want in sex, after all, isn't just pleasure. It's good. Pleasure's good. And we want pleasure, of course, and the Bible affirms pleasure as a distinct good, a creation of God that's really good. Please, friends, if you have been taught somehow that you will only have sex to have kids and you will only do it in the missionary position and you will you know, only do it with the lights off and your eyes closed and you will promise not to enjoy it, that's not biblical. That's not biblical. Okay, uh, whatever. Um, we can talk about that in premarital counseling, okay? Um, but listen, pleasure is good and we want pleasure, but it's never, sex is never ultimately about pleasure. It's about connection. Sex is ultimately about connection. It's about being known and loved. It's about intimacy. I can prove it to you uncomfortably right now. In masturbation, which on the surface seems only about physical pleasure, you must summon up some image, some fantasy, some form of connection. It's almost impossible for you to satisfy your sexual arousal without some promise of connection in your mind. Do you see that? I'm not saying you can't get turned on randomly. I'm, I'm fine. But for you to satisfy the desires that are stirred up in you, it's not just the physical pleasure that you're after. It's connection. It's, it's intimacy. It's oneness. Everyone who doesn't have sex wants more. And everyone who has sex wants more. Even this extraordinary love poem, the Song of Songs, okay, it ends with wanting more. That's how it actually ends. Right after this magnificent little moment about love as being awesome, strong, and if a dude were to like to sell everything he had for love, we'd be like, you can't do it that way, you know? And, uh, and it's this great, I totally misdid the poem, but, but this is a great poem, but it doesn't end there. It moves on. It moves on to this little vignette of, um, that, that I think is really awesome. It's like this powerful move where it's like King Solomon um, will sell his vineyards, and she's like, I got mine. I don't need yours. You keep your vineyard and all the money. You can't buy this one. And you, know, you should know what vineyard means by now. But anyway, uh, then, but there's one more vignette right at the very end. At the very end of this love poem, the man is saying, where is she? I can't find her. And she says, come running, let's find each other. And they they don't have each other at the end. 
They're looking for more. And this is so true to the life of anybody who engages in sexual intimacy, that you're always left wanting more. Married couples want more than their marriage can satisfy, and single people want more than their singleness can satisfy. Turns out love that's as strong as death needs something stronger than death, friends. And sex, like everything else in the cosmos, points to its Lord and its Creator. Sex, in the end, awakens love that only God and Jesus will satisfy in the end. I am quite sure that physical pleasure will be a norm in the new creation. I am. I'm quite sure about that. But I am more sure that we will be known and loved and will be sealed with a guarantee by the very Spirit of God. Sex, it was created to address this sort of loneliness and to create a form of community, but also finally we see, and, and this is played out in every single, uh, every single couple that has sex at all, but married couples too, even within the context of marriage. That in the end, their satisfaction from sex doesn't make them go, and now we're done, we got exactly what we wanted, and we're totally finished. All that's happened is what's awakened in them is, is, is more, and they've, if they've tasted the garden in a sense... They've had this experience of being naked and unashamed, and, and maybe you, you can't peel back the layers of the scarred onion enough to, to realize that you want that so bad yet. But everyone in here is desperate to be in the presence of someone they love and to be naked and unashamed. We are desperate for that. And there's this taste of it that can happen, but it, in the end, it's not enough and God wants it that way. He wants somebody to experience the best that two humans can ever have together and realize that they still want more. And now they get to do that, to search for that more together. For something that's stronger than death. Not something that's as strong as death. Something that is stronger than it. So listen, love is good. Love is powerful. And love points us to something more. This is what the Song of Songs tells us about. This is, this is so good. Uh, this rabbi in the first century, he said, this is such a great way of thinking about the Song of, Psalms, Song of Songs. He said that all of the scriptures are holy. The Song of Songs is the holy of holies. The holy of holies is this, this, uh, this place in the middle of this tabernacle or temple that God instructed his people to build where God would, at various times, dwell with his people. He makes a promise with them, and then he has intimacy with them in the Holy of Holies. And Rabbi Akiva, in about 100 AD, looks at the Song of Songs and he goes, my goodness, scripturally, this is the story about commitment and intimacy coming together. This is the whole, maybe no story in the entire Old Testament so explicitly talks about our longings and our desires and the satisfaction of our desires in love, like, like a song of songs. Love is powerful. Love is good. And love points us to something more. The woman says love is a powerful fire. But what happens when that fire gets out of control? <laughs> what happens when an open flame in the, is in the wrong place at the wrong time? What happens when sex goes sideways? We're going to explore that next week. Let's pray. Father, uh, 
I am aware right now that for so many of us in this room, uh, it is very, very difficult. Well, it's, it's probably not that difficult to believe that sex is powerful, but, but maybe some of us are deceived at how powerful it is. And for probably a lot of us in this room, it's hard to believe that sex is good because of the ways that it has been misused and abused. I thank you for this story. I thank you for this country girl in her virtue and in her passion that she leans forward with a desire and um, and that you uh, allowing this or giving this to us and allowing this to be a part of our holy scriptures and to have it be affirmed by your people throughout history in various ways lets us know that you, that you, you are the Lord over pleasure. You're the Lord over sexual intimacy and, and it's good and you actually want us to have it. Lord, where we need um, hope, give us hope. Where we need the, the promise of redemption, let us believe it. For anyone in this room that has made an idol out of it and maybe never even had sex, please, God, send your spirit to give them a vision for something more. Because there's no other human that's ultimately going to satisfy this. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.